0: Welcome back to What's Up With Your Down There. I'm your host, Miriam Rosenberg, certified nurse midwife at Legacy Emanuel Midwifery in Portland, Oregon. Today's episode is the second half of our series on menopause. What's up
1: with your down there?
0: If you're just tuning in, I'm talking with Karen Adams, Director of Oregon Health and Sciences University's Center for Menopause and Sexual Medicine program. And on today's episode, she's going to be taking your questions about menopause. So let's dive in. So let's jump into some questions that you guys submitted. And I will say, I got more questions about menopause than any other topic that we have done episodes about. So clearly, there is interest and clearly, there are questions. We'll tackle as much as we can today. So the first one has to do with pubic hair. As I get older, I'm losing my bush confidence. What the heck? That hair is thinning out and I'm not ready for it. Will I go bald? What's the remedy?
1: Yeah, that happens. It happens. It does tend to get more sparse. It does tend to uh, just decrease, and that is a real thing. And there is zero data that says that Rogaine or any other kind of remedy will fix this. So I. So do
0: not spread Rogaine across your mom's PUBS people. Right. It, it will not fix the issue, and we don't have any data to say that's a safe idea. Right. Okay. So I would say if you ever wanted to do
1: shaving or waxing, this might be the time because then you're going to have less to do. But in general, gynecologists are not great fans of pubic grooming because it can cause folliculitis and skin issues and things. We don't typically, I said that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, we're not big fans of, of shaving or waxing.
0: The next question is, I seem to be getting bacterial vaginosis and yeast infections more frequently since I had my uterus and ovaries removed. Why is that and is there anything I can do about it? Wow, that's a great question. You know, there's so
1: many things that could be factoring into that. Uh, we know that. So this person sounds like they are surgically menopausal. O- both ovaries are out. The vagina loves estrogen. I'm just going to say that again. And so, genitourinary syndrome of menopause, or GSM, which is what happens after ovaries are removed, is um, vaginal dryness, vaginal thinning of the of the tissues, the vaginal pH goes up, which is exactly what happens with bacterial vaginosis as well. So it could be that it's not yeast or bacterial vaginosis. It could be an uncomfortable, irritated vagina. And that can be due to lots of different reasons. So um, if you are getting cultures or you're seeing a provider and they're saying, gosh, you know, you got another yeast infection, or you really do have another bacterial vaginosis infection, then that is probably not a one-to-one correlation with the fact that your ovaries have come out, you know, uh, because there's nothing in menopause per se that makes people get more yeast infections or more bacterial vaginosis. They certainly
0: have ouchier, unhappier vaginas if they are not treated. So there's a possibility that if you are self-diagnosing with bacterial vaginosis or yeast because you've had those infections before and this feels similar, it might be worth going to see someone to confirm whether or not that's truly the diagnosis, because it's also possible that the issue is a lack of estrogen in your vagina that's making your vagina painful, uncomfortable, and maybe mimicking some of the symptoms of those two forms of vaginitis. The next question is, I'm three years post-menopause and having painful intercourse. Specifically, pain at the lower vaginal introitus and perineum. I've been using vaginal estrogen cream three times a week. Lubricants are no longer helpful. I'm in a mutually monogamous loving marriage of 35 years. My husband is very kind and understanding. I'm frustrated, angry, mad, and embarrassed that my body is betraying me. We would very much like to continue the sexual part of our marriage. Please don't say we have to get creative or make do with cuddling. Help.
1: Absa... you do not have to get creative although getting creative is not a bad thing but you still should be able to have what I call PIV penis in vagina and for people who don't have partners with a penis you should be able to put fingers in the vagina you should be able to put a sex toy in the vagina you should be able to put things in the vagina without pain and it is totally sane not to want to do something that hurts and so I, I think that's really important that people continue to pursue it so so when I see someone who uh, presents for sexual pain, the first thing I want to do is figure out where that pain is coming from, because it can come from a lot of different areas. It can come from the skin. People can get psoriasis of the vulva. They can get lichen planus, lichen sclerosis. They can get all kinds of different skin conditions. It can come from nerves. It can come from the fact that around the opening of the vagina, the nerves can get kind of overgrown and ouchy. and you know even just touching with a Q-tip makes people jump. It feels like a knife or something really painful instead of it feeling like a Q-tip. So it can be that. It can be estrogen-related because, again, the vagina loves estrogen and the tissue gets thin and less flexible and less moist and less stretchy and can cause little tears and micro trauma, things like that. So it can be estrogen-related. It almost never is coming from the stretchiness of the vagina. Although often people say it feels like everything's really tight and there's no room in there anymore. But most of the time when I examine women, they actually have room in the vagina. It's more the opening that is ouchy, just as this questioner is saying. The other place where pain can really come from is the pelvic floor because the pelvic floor is this muscle bowl that sort of sits at the bottom of the abdomen and the vagina goes through it and the bowel goes through it and the bladder sits on top of it and we can go about halfway up inside the vagina and feel the edges of that muscle and if that muscle is spasming, which it often does when people have gotten used to there being pain there, you can touch that edge of the muscle and people are off the table. And just feeling it, it feels like a banjo string. And that's called pelvic floor myalgia or vaginismus. And that can often happen as a secondary cause of painful penetration. So you've had enough painful penetration and you start having pelvic floor spasm. And you can, now you've got two things going on. So you've got to treat both
0: that's really a protective mechanism. If your body experiences pain, it's gonna do what it can to try to stop you from feeling that pain. So if you have painful sex, the next time someone tries to put something inside your vagina, or you try to put something inside your vagina, those muscles are trying to protect you by closing the opening, right? Like, keep it out, let's not do that again. And unfortunately, what happens is if those muscles tighten up, it makes it even more painful to insert anything into your vagina. And then there's this cycle that occurs, Mm -hmm. right? So people have the painful intercourse at first, and then it gets compounded by a protective mechanism, and it gets worse and worse unless there's something to interrupt the cycle.
1: Exactly. And the way women describe this is it feels like he's hitting a wall or feels like a ring of bone. I mean, really very profound, painful experiences and if there's one thing I would say, it's don't try to grit your teeth and get through it because pain is not where you wanna be with this. So the North American Menopause Society, which is sort of the big group of people who research this and talk about this, Um, have a whole lot of great resources on their website. And their guidelines for this are to start with vaginal moisturizers and lubricants. Moisturizers are used in the vagina, not at the time of intercourse. Lubricants are used at the time of penetration in the vagina, either intercourse or anything else being inserted in the vagina. My favorite lubricant actually is coconut oil. Uh, there are lots of commercial ones on the market. My least favorite lubricant is KY Water-Based Liquid. Um, any kind of water-based lubricant is going to get sticky and ball up in a minute or two, and you have to keep putting it on, and it really doesn't work all that well. It should be used for condoms and for sex toys, particularly silicone sex toys. If you use a silicone lubricant, it's going to get sticky and kind of crumble. The silicone sex toy It's not good for the vibrate. So water-based lubricants for condoms or silicone sex toys. Other than that, silicone lubricants are good. They're slippery. They stay where you put them, uh, but they don't have the greatest texture, and they tend to be very expensive, you know, like 4 dollars for KY water, $15, $18 for KY silicon. Coconut oil is cheap, it smells great, it stays where you put it, it's slippery, and it's naturally antifungal, so it will tend to keep down yeast infections. It's waxy, kind of at room temperature, and so you just melt it on your hands, put some on whatever you're putting in the vagina, and put some on the vagina, and then you can even take a little glob and insert it into the vagina. That all really helps. So with using the right lubricant, sometimes people will say, okay, so it's slippery, but it still hurts. so moisturizers are bioadhesive polymers. And what they do is they adhere to the vaginal epithelium and they absorb up to a thousand times their weight in water. And so you do it three times a week. Um, There are a whole bunch of different ones. Replens is one. hyalogine is one. Uh, Juvagine is one. And there's a little plunger that you attach to the tube and you fill up the plunger, insert it in the vagina like three times a week. So you get out of the shower, you moisturize your face, you moisturize your body, you moisturize your vagina. And and for some women, the lubricant and the moisturizer is enough. And then for people who that's not really enough and you've gone to the... The provider and you figured out you don't have something on the skin and you don't have the uh, you know lichen planus or any of those things and it looks like it's estrogen. One of the things that works really really well for women while they're getting the estrogen effect in the vagina is
0: lidocaine. liquid lidocaine is the same stuff the dentist uses. And just to clarify, lidocaine is a numbing medication. So it's the idea is that it is going to reduce some of the sensation that you're feeling. Correct. Exactly. And so if you
1: just kind of stick it up inside the vagina like a tampon, you're going to miss the point. You want it to sit right where you feel like it's ouchiest with the insertion. And you just let it sit there. For three to five minutes make sure you take it out don't leave it in before you have sex and what that does is it just numbs up that area if you're with a male partner they are covered with skin and they're not going to absorb the lidocaine the numbing liquid in the way that the vagina will the vagina is like the inside of our mouth it's very mucosal uh, tissue and it absorbs much more easily so you're going to get a nice kind of numbing of that area that's so ouchy but you're still gonna feel and you can still have an orgasm and and you can still be responsive you just won't have the pain and that's certainly not a long-term cure but it's a way to have not painful sex so that the pelvic floor doesn't spasm and you don't end up creating things more problems for yourself
0: you can kind of break that pain tension pain cycle Exactly. So lidocaine is a real lifesaver. And
1: then I would just say you didn't get here overnight and you're probably not going to cure this overnight. And I don't know how long you've been using the estrogen, but what the way I have women do it is I have them put about a dime sized amount on their fingertip and rub it into the opening of the vagina. Again, I show them with a mirror. I point with a Q-tip. I say right here is where I want you to use it. And you put it in that area every night for at least a month and then two or three times a week after that. Sometimes I'll have them do an estrogen tablet or a little cream up inside the vagina as well but the pain is generally coming from the opening not from the inside of the vagina and so uh, over time it can take six weeks, eight weeks, six months. It can take a long time but over time with the lidocaine and using good lubricant things will get better. Don't lose hope. So I think the frustration often is, you know, you do it for a couple months, it's not getting better. What else can I do?
0: I would say just stick with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tincture of time will help as Mm -hmm. well. The next question is actually on that topic as well. What do you think about vaginal suppositories with DHEA, cocoa butter, beeswax, vitamin E, as a way for postmenopausal women to combat dryness and atrophy?
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, 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 yes. So all of the other ones after the DHEA, the other ones are moisturizers. And any oil is going to work very well as a lubricant. So it's better to use things that we have studied and that we know are safe in the vagina because the vaginal flora can change if you're putting beeswax or Vaseline or Pond's cold cream or various substances, douching. Douching is a terrible idea. No one should ever douche. So I wouldn't just be inserting every lubricant or moisturizer that you can come up with into the vagina. What I can tell you is that Vaseline on the outside, on the vulva, can often be a soothing moisture barrier and can be helpful if women are experiencing vulvar irritation. Aquaphor is lovely and wonderful and very inert for the vulva But actually, inserting things in the vagina, I would limit it to coconut oil, olive oil, almond oil, those kinds of very bland oils that work very well as lubricants. Vitamin E is kind of an anti inflammatory, and that's also very gentle and okay for the vagina. Cocoa butter and beeswax, I don't know of any data or any research about that. And I don't know what the ph of it is and what it what it might do in the vagina dhea is very interesting it is a precursor to testosterone a dhea suppository has just come out a vaginal suppository it's a commercially manufactured vaginal insert for gsm genitourinary syndrome of menopause so painful intercourse vaginal dryness the way it works is so interesting because once it's inserted into the vagina, it metabolizes into two estrogens, both bioidentical, and three androgens, all bioidentical, so um, male-type hormones, testosterone, etc. And what they found in this is it not only treats vaginal dryness and painful intercourse, but it improves libido, improves desire, improves satisfaction, improves orgasm. But when they draw blood levels, they're menopausal levels. So these things are not circulating in people's bloodstreams, yet they are getting systemic type effects. What the heck, you know, what does this even mean? How do we explain this? Well, the theory is, that the effect of the testosterone and other androgens in the vagina along with the estrogens may improve nerve sensitivity and may improve sensation in such a way that it improves women's libido and their sexual functioning it's very interesting downside to it is it's ridiculously expensive like most of the commercial preparations are and there's no generic form for it right now and so it's only the brand name so in reality I I have not been able to use it very much with my patients because no one can afford it it ends up being a couple hundred dollars
0: each month wow and you've guided me beautifully to our next question What the f*** is up with the cost of estrogen for postmenopausal women? I initially tried both Estrace Cream and the S String. And then I asked my doctor if there was a more cost-effective option. We ultimately decided to try a quarter of an estradiol tablet twice monthly. It's worked great and is way more cost-effective, but I can't find adequate data around safety. No one will do the study because it doesn't benefit the pharmaceutical industry. Do you know of any data that would support a more cost-effective estrogen replacement therapy?
1: Oh, man. You know, I... Pound the table about this when I lecture about it because it is so offensive what we are charged for these drugs that are safe and effective and work and affect all of us, you know, all of us are going to go through menopause. 80% of us are going to have hot flashes and night sweats. 50% of us are going to have vaginal dryness and painful intercourse. And why, why, why is this so incredibly expensive? It absolutely drives me nuts. And there is a real thing that's called the pink tax. And the pink tax is that pink razors cost more than blue razors and pink antiperspirants cost more than blue antiperspirants. And in, insurance should cover tampons and pads and menstrual cups and because it's health care for women. And it is absolutely outrageous to me that we are asked to pay for our own health care in this way. It's really true. There is a Senate bill in the Congress right now that is Hoping to address some of these things that will allow Medicare and Medicaid, which are the biggest insurers in the country, to negotiate with uh, pharmaceutical companies for better rates. Right now, they aren't even allowed to negotiate. And really what happens is pharmaceutical companies contract with insurance companies to put certain drugs on their formulary, which they will cover more effectively than others. And then they give the insurers a break and charge them less. And you would think that those savings would be passed on to the consumer. But no, they are held in the insurance company, in their benefits structure. And so who does it benefit? The insurance companies. It does not benefit the patient. And so the patient ends up paying what they would pay anyway without, That negotiation and the benefit goes to the insurance company. So I can only say that the healthcare system in this country is broken and it's broken on so many levels, but one of the big areas. That is just really ripe for social justice warriors to get out there and write letters and agitate for is the cost of hormones and drugs to treat painful sex in women. In the short term, in your world where you have to pick up a prescription and try to get something that you can afford, I would refer you to goodrx.com which is a website that you can put in the drug and you can put in your zip code and it will tell you what the cost is at all the different pharmacies. And you'd be surprised at the cost difference. Another way is to have your doctor look at this and give you something that tends to be cheaper, generic pills. Prometrium, which is a micronized progesterone, tend to be affordable. These newer drugs that have come out, like the DHEA suppository that I mentioned, or a thing called a Comba patch, which is estrogen and progesterone together in a patch, can be $200, $250 a month. And then some of the most expensive ones are the rings that go in the vagina that can be like $400 for three months, which is just outrageous. And so often we resort to compounded, because they're cheaper. Uh, some people get their hormones from Canada. There's a thing called the Women's International Pharmacy, and some of my patients have gone online and looked for these, and they asked me to send them to those pharmacies, and I'm happy to do it, but I can't vouch for them.
0: The next question is, My libido has disappeared since I entered menopause, despite no particular issues with my partner, my body, or my mental health. It's just gone. I've heard testosterone can help. What do you think? Is it safe? Does it work?
1: Yes and yes. The way they do the research... In this area is they look at what they call sexually satisfying events and what they want to see is an increase in sexually satisfying events over placebo and that's important because there is a strong placebo response in these drug trials and there was a a great article that was that was published about a month ago in the journal lancet looking at the world's data about testosterone and menopausal women. What they found is that testosterone in Postmenopausal women does increase sexually satisfying events over placebo. Now it's only one or two per month. It's not a huge, robust, like doubling of the frequency. But if you're only having sex once a month and now you're having it twice, that's better, right? So there does seem to be benefit. And it was beneficial in terms of desire and sexual satisfaction and orgasm. Uh, They did find that any delivery system other than a pill, other than swallowing a pill, is safer because swallowing a pill can raise your cholesterol. So doing it in a lifesaver that people suck uh, that's compounded or a cream What I like to use is what's called a troche, a testosterone troche. I will say there is nothing that is commercially available. There are no FDA approved versions of testosterone, but we hope that with this uh, meta-analysis that that may come back around again. Every time testosterone has come to the FDA, they've turned it down for safety concerns, even though the studies have demonstrated an increase in sexually satisfying events. But they've said, no, we see negative lipid effects and maybe it increases the risk of breast cancer Uh, they've never really shown any robust effect of in terms of breast cancer and viagra can cause blindness you know i mean really so hopefully this will come back to the fda but for now we're compounding it absolutely it works and it can help but i will say that libido in general is very complex All of human sexual behavior, men and women, is a balance of accelerators and brakes. And we often think that we need more accelerator, that we need fancy lingerie, and we need fancy lubricant, and we need sex toys, and we need all these things. But often for women, it's not about hitting the accelerator. It's about getting your foot off the brake. And there are a lot of things that make us hit the brake. And it's things like, I worked 70 hours that week, my mother is staying with us, my vagina hurts, I'm tired, or whatever. It's so contextual. There's so many things that factor into our libido that it's important, I think, to realize that you're not broken. There's not something wrong with you, that you love your partner and you don't wanna have sex. Honestly, if you went to Bora Bora for six weeks and you had somebody take care of the kids and you weren't worried about your aging parents and you slept for two weeks and maybe your libido might come back a little bit and certainly there's some physical things that can impact that there are three things that really predict a healthy sex drive for women one is mental health there's a strong correlation between depression and anxiety and mood disorders and things and lack of libido or difficulty with libido so pay attention to your psychological health the second one is medical health physical health so if you have chronic pain if you have hypertension, if you have rheumatoid arthritis, if you're obese, if you, you know, all these different kinds of things that impact your physical health can also impact your, um, your sex drive and your libido. And the third is a new relationship. And so most of us are very interested when we first start with our relationship, and that's called limerence, and we're like thinking about them, and we want to see them, and we're all into it. And after somewhere between one and four years in a relationship for women, that tends to settle down. And we sort of long for it, and we wish that we could be our 20-year-old self or 25-year-old self, but... You know, in some ways, it's a good thing that we don't continue that forever or no one would ever run for president or fly airplanes or become, you know, surgeons or anything because we'd all be just home having sex all the time. And so there's kind of some natural rhythms that happen. And I guess my message in all of this is that. People who don't want to have sex are not broken. And so if you want to be more sexually active and you want to have more of a libido, there are ways to work on that.
0: Thank you for that very nuanced and sex-positive response. I really appreciate Mm -hmm. that. Switching gears for a moment. um, The next question is from a menopausal person who said, my mother had Alzheimer's and I'm terrified that I will get it too. I've read that estrogen replacement may have a benefit in reducing my risk for Alzheimer's. What is your take on that?
1: Mm -hmm. That's a great question and a, a real concern for a lot of women. Women's rates of dementia of all types, Alzheimer's and other types, are higher than men's. And so we are more at risk for that, and family history does factor into it. The data on dementia and menopause and hormone therapy is conflicting. So in that huge study that we talked about before, the Women's Health Initiative, there was a subset trial called WIMS, the Women's Health Initiative. memory study. And in that study, they found that women who are on hormones at age 65 or older have double the rates of dementia. However, that is 25 cases per 10,000 women. So doubling the 12 per 10,000 to 25 is still pretty small. And again, there's lots and lots of benefits of being on hormones. That's one study. But there's a research group in Colorado that's been looking at this for decades. And what they've found is women who start on hormones around the time of menopause and just stay on it in their 70s have dementia rates that approach that of men's very low. So the questions are complex. It has a lot to do with the duration of use, what time you If you start it when you're 49 versus if you start it when you're 60, you know, uh, what type you're taking, how long you've taken it, that data just really isn't there yet. And so my sense is based on what we know that starting hormones around the age of menopause is very, very different from starting it later on in life. And there is just so much evidence that starting it when you're 49, 50, 51, in that time of menopausal transition, you're going to get benefits. And there's really not an age where we recommend people stop. It used to be at 65, you stop. If you've been on it since 50, you you need to stop at 65. And we really don't recommend that any longer. And it may be that if you're 50, you should stay on it until they take it from your cold, dead fingers. <laughs> The other thing I would say about dementia is there is evidence that exercising your brain helps. So doing crossword puzzles, doing the New York Times crossword puzzle, reading something other than, you know, just fluff magazines and really trying to keep your brain active helps. When they are working people up for early mild cognitive impairment, the first thing they do is make sure people are sleeping because if your sleep is disturbed, it comes along, makes sense that you would have brain fog during the day and so those kinds of things are very important for just you know mental floss.
0: The next question is about timing of menopause so you were talking about the potential benefit of starting these hormonal treatments early in the menopause transition is there a way to determine when a person with a uterus or a woman may begin to experience menopause? Can she look to her mother's or grandmother to know when she might expect to start the process? I ask because my mother passed away when she was 40. Her mother started into menopause around 45, and my other grandmother was in her mid-50s. We hear different things about this, but I would love to know the science. I'm sure this is one of those, it happens when it happens deals, but it doesn't hurt to ask. Mm.
1: There is a little bit of a correlation uh, with when your mom or your sisters went through it, you might be able to uh, have a little bit of a sense of when that may happen. But there's so many different things that factor into it that it's
0: really hard to know so we can't really predict when you're going to go through menopause. It is just going to happen when it happens. There might be some familial tendencies, but it's not a surefire thing. Sorry we can't give you more than that. Dr. Adams, thank you so much for being on this podcast. I feel like you are a wealth of information about menopause, and we look forward to hearing from you more in the future. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. That was Dr. Adams, director of the Menopause and Sexual Medicine Program at Oregon Health Sciences University's Center for Women's Health. I really hope you guys got something out of this episode and felt like your questions were answered. If you have other questions about menopause or anything else related to your down there, you can submit your questions by emailing what's up with your down there at gmail.com, by calling 503-660-8689 and leaving a voicemail, or by going to the website, www.whatsupwithyourdownthere.com. To stay up to date on what's going on with the podcast, you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Your Down There, and or you can subscribe on kboo.fm, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. To be clear, the views expressed in this podcast do not represent the views of my wonderful employer, Legacy Health System. Furthermore, this podcast is for your amusement and education only. It is not a substitute for the medical advice of your health care provider. Thanks so much for tuning in. I look forward to answering your questions on the next episode. This podcast was made possible by a generous community grant from the American College of Nurse Midwives and the Francis T. Thatcher Foundation. Original music by Joe McKenzie, with vocals by Christina Cano. Artwork by Sarah J. Elliott. This podcast was produced at KBU Community Radio in Portland, Oregon kboo.fm Thanks for listening K-Blue.